So uh, we're resuming our series on the life of David, and this morning, so we're, this is our third of ten, and this morning we're coming to one of the very famous stories of David and Goliath, and just to recap a little bit about where we've been, uh, we looked a couple weeks ago, we looked at the failures of Israel's current king, uh, King Saul, and the unlikely choice of David, uh, the young son of a shepherd in Bethlehem, is chosen by God, that's God's man to serve, as Israel's next leader. And what happens after that, really, is a, is a discussion, or a lot of stories that make the biblical case for what the leader of God's people should look like. And so last week, we saw how David's somebody that brings peace into Israel's courts, and even serves and loves somebody that will become his enemy. And then this morning, we're looking at David and Goliath, where we see that, uh, that this leader is one who fights on behalf of God's people, fights their enemy. So let's look together. This, I, I, uh, this is a long text, and so I'm just going to ask you to hang with me on this. I'm actually only going to read 1 through 49, um, but I put the whole thing in there for you. And, and here's the reason for that. It's just because it's so beautiful. It's such a beautiful story. And uh, there are elements uh, in it throughout that really tie it all together. And uh, I, I did my best to shorten the sermon on the back end for you, okay? So let's read together. This is the word of the Lord, 1 Samuel 17. I'm reading 1 through 49. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Succah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Succah and Azekah in Ephes Damon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, "'Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine?' And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem and Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. And in the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three, the three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest, the three eldest 
followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And for 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand and see if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Allah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle shouting the war cry and Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper that the baggage uh, in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. And when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. 
So David put them off, and then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. My father, what a story. Uh, Lord, would you work among us and be our helper this morning? Would you help us to hear what you'd have us hear? Uh, Would you convince us of the truth of your goodness and your sovereignty, your good favor toward your people, and stir us with wonder at the goodness of a Savior who is willing to stand between his people and their enemy? Pray that you would help me to speak clearly and lovingly to these friends, to honor you and serve you with, the, with this time. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's an ecological experiment. Uh, you've probably heard about it, but it's been running for several years now, decades actually. Uh, and it, what it does is it looks to investigate uh, what the presence of an alpha predator will do to animals of prey. And one iteration of this you may have heard about, it was mid to late 90s when scientists reintroduced the gray wolf back into Yellowstone National Park. Some of you have heard about this and what it did to actually restore wildlife balance to the area and how important that was. But there was an insight that came from, from that study that is continuing to be chased down. And it's simply this. That the presence of a predator, the way the presence of a predator actually operates on the mind and the life of animals of prey. Because what they found were that deer and elk and other prey that wolves attack, uh, their population was decreasing much faster than the wolves alone could account for. And so the way the theory goes is uh, is simply this, that the the presence of this predator and the fear that it induces had a dramatic effect on their, you know, reproducing and eating habits. 
And so what it meant was that these animals were dying faster and reproducing more slowly. And uh, here's the line that caught my eye. One journalist described it this way. said that the presence of a, of a predator created a landscape of fear. The psychological topography that exists in the minds of prey, complete with the mountains of danger and the valley of safety. And he made the observation that the landscape of fear quickly translates into a landscape of death. And the only reason I bring this up for you is because I cannot find a more apt description of what David saw when he came to the battle lines to see his brothers. That up and down the line, to a man, everyone was paralyzed with fear. The landscape of fear was probably so pervasive, he could smell it in the air. And I bring this up because we talk a lot about David and Goliath. It's become something kind of enshrined in our culture and our lives with each other. I have heard mention of it no less than five times this weekend with the basketball tournament, right? And it's always in reference, almost always in reference to someone's abilities. The abilities of a weaker team against the abilities of a stronger team, right? But as I look at this story, I see nothing about ability in this passage, What makes David different was his willingness to put his foot forward in the middle of a landscape of fear when nobody else would. And that's the question I want to chase down with you this morning, is why was David willing to go where nobody else would go? And I'm going to try and chase that question down just by asking three other questions. What did David see? What did he want or desire And then what did he do? What did he see? What did he want? What did he do? First, what did he do? Or sorry, what did he see? Well, the first thing he saw was infectious fear. Like we've already talked about that a little bit. But what exactly were these people afraid of? Well, if you look, verses 5 through 7 are are, uh, this detailed, very specific explanation of this man, Goliath, who stood before them. It's like the narrator is making the point just by going on and on about how imposing of a figure he is. Uh, He talks about his height. uh, He talks about his armor. He talks about the sizes and the weight of his weapons. It's really interesting that this narrator includes, careful to mention, that the spear's head was made of iron, which was a material that wasn't available to Israelites during that time. So it wasn't just that he was far bigger than everybody else. And far more imposing, they're also giving the sense of a technological superiority that these people have. And so, so when you weigh all that, put all that together, like fear is really understandable, right? Like there's much to be afraid of in this passage. But what stands out to me, and this is why I'm calling it an infectious fear, is verse 11. Right after Goliath issues his challenge, it says, when Saul... And all the Israel and all Israel heard these words. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. But the story is careful to include Saul. And there, there are so many uh, illustrations of the necessity of good leadership in the face of fear that it was hard to choose just one. But you know, the one that kept popping into my head was in Return of the King. 
the, um, the, the, the story that Matt titled his sermon after, but didn't use any of their illustrations last week. I'm going to go ahead and do that right now. But it was when, it was when King Theoden was riding up, uh, leading the army of Rohan against this dark, terrifying enemy. They looked very intimidating and, and powerful, and uh, they're facing them. And what do you see? It's an amazing scene if you watch the movie. It's also good in the book. But... Um, but what do you see? He rides up and down the front line, right? And he gives the stirring speech, words of courage and encouragement, uh, exhorting them to bravery and reminding them of the virtues of the fight and who they're fighting for. And, and what's he doing? He is stirring them up to courage, but he's also saying to them, I'm in this fight with you. That, that I'm, I'm going out in front of you. I stand in front of you now and I'm going in with you. And that's the kind of, why is he doing that? Because he, he's a good king. And that's what you come to expect of a good king. And if courage is infectious, I'll tell you, fear certainly is, right? And one of the things this story is telling us is that David is seeing a fear, an infectious fear that traces his origin to its king, King Saul. So he sees infectious fear, but he also sees a spiritual defiance in this passage. The word defy is used several times. You might have noticed it. It's used five times in this passage. It's a really important word. First, it's used by Goliath to explain his posture toward the people of Israel. He said, uh, I defy the people of Israel. Uh, the men of Israel in verse 25 agreed with Goliath and his defiance. But David saw something more. Three times, 26, 36, 45, David used this word to describe Goliath's posture toward God. When God's people fight, they are fighting the Lord's battle, is what David called it. And so David saw that each time he said to this man, you are defying not just the people of God, but the armies of the living God. That he is defying God himself. Because to David, there's no difference. To defy God's army is to defy God himself. So to David, he's, this isn't just warrior bravado, all this taunting and strutting and all that. It's not warrior bravado it's, it's spiritual defiance of the living God. That's what David saw. And so that's what you see. You see infectious fear, spiritual defiance. And when he sees these things, David gets all stirred up. And you can almost see him ramping up. Like it starts with, it starts with just asking questions and getting rebuked by his older brother. And eventually he goes to Saul. And it's almost like David is building in, uh, in he's, he's becoming more and more animated about what he's seeing. And, and during all of this time, as he engages in conversations, we get a glimpse at what David actually wants or desires. And the first thing that he is, the first thing that he is eager for is Israel's honor. Look at verse 26. He asks, what shall be done for the man who takes away this reproach? from Israel. That word reproach can also mean disgrace. And so for 40 days, Israel is, is being disgraced or bearing a, a reproach by this man. And what David wants is to simply restore the honor and the dignity of his people. 
And so he wants that, but he also wants to establish a redemptive witness. Redemptive witness. This is critical. If you look further down at verse 37, uh, you know, he went through explaining how his shepherding duties had led him to engage with predators of strength and danger. He then offers this. This is just beautiful. He said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hands of this Philistine. The Lord will deliver me. And when he's talking to Goliath, he says something similar when he's standing off with him. He says, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and all the earth will know that there is a God in Israel. David is taking pains to point out that whatever happens between him and Goliath, that, it's, that we are bearing witness to the Lord working out his redemption in their midst. That, that what they see happen is a product of, of, of the Lord's power and the Lord's strength. And so he's accomplishing, what he's looking for is the, the witness of God's redemptive work. Emerson once said, nothing brings peace like the triumph of principles. And I think one of the things we see here is just a clash of principles. That to the men of Israel, Goliath is someone to be feared. But to David, God is the only one worthy of our fear. And to the Israelites, facing off against Goliath is foolishness or the absence of wisdom. But to David, facing off against God's people... And God himself is the epitome of foolishness. And so David is operating with an entirely different set of principles. And what he wants more than anything is to see the Lord triumph through his people in, the war, in, the, in a way that the whole world will bear witness to God's redemptive work. That's what he wants. He wants Israel restored and he wants everyone to see what the Lord can do. Redemptive witness. So that's what he saw. That's what he wanted. And, and, and uh, one of the things that we see is that he's just simply more concerned for the dignity of God's name and the honor of his people. And these desires weigh so, so heavy on him that he's actually willing to take action. Remember, what motivated David in willingness to take action that, that nobody else had? Well, this is why. That's why. Those were the desires that animated him. And so what does he do with those desires? Well, there's a really interesting exchange here in this passage. David speaks of serving as the people's champion. And when he does that, really what he's doing is he's saying to Saul, I'll do your job for you. I'll do your job for you. It's in chapter 8, when the people are asking for a king, you know what they asked for? They asked for someone who would go out before us and fight our battle for us. They were asking for someone who, who, would, who, would face, uh, who would face this enemy. And Saul was the giant of the Israelites, if you remember. He's the one who stood head and shoulders above everyone else. And he was the one who was supposed to be facing off with Goliath. And that's why this little story about... David trying on Saul's armor is really interesting because there was a belief 
that to wear the clothing of another or to actually carry their weapons was to be imbued with their essence or their very being in some way. There was a belief, and there are scholars that think that, they, that, that, that Saul is actually um, making a calculated move to bind himself to David so that he could actually share in David's victory. Came across that idea in several places, but what David does is he stands in the gap in his own clothes. The word champion literally means the man in between. To stand in between your people and an enemy. And he does so dressed as a shepherd. Wearing a shepherd's garb. Carrying a shepherd's staff. With a shepherd's bag. What is this making you think of? With a shepherd's bag that's full of stones. And what David does is he exacts a full exchange of himself for Saul. I'll fight this fight so you don't have to. I've told you before about my inglorious career, short-lived career as a uh, member of a church uh, league softball team. Uh, I'll tell you, there, there are no wonderful stories from that small era in my life about what I did on a softball field, but here's one of the more embarrassing ones. Um, Basically, I I mean, the team was great. There were all people that used to play baseball. I was the weakest by far player on the team, and every now and then they let me play defense. And uh, and in this league, if they, uh, they, uh, in this league, you hide your uh, weakest uh, fielder at second base. That's where you put him. And so that's where I was, of course. So I'm playing second base, and uh, and I know it. Everybody on my team knows why I'm in second base. Everybody on the other team knows why. I'm on second base, and, uh, and you know, it's harder than it sounds, but um, it, if you try, uh, you might be able to hit opposite field past second base, and you give yourself a pretty good chance of getting on base, and, uh, and, and that's exactly what this person was trying to do when he stood up to the plate. It was this old guy. I remember he was old, grizzled. He looked... He looked like he'd been playing baseball for a really long time and knew exactly what he was doing. But when he stepped up to the plate, he was staring at me. And I'm like, why, why are you staring at me, dude? Um, everybody else knew why he was staring at me, and that's because he was going to try and hit it my direction. And the shortstop, who's the strongest fielder on the team, knew what was going on. And, uh, of course, this guy hits a pop fly to second base. And... Um, there's this feeling when you don't know what you're doing where your feet are just rooted to the ground and you can't seem to move and you're like leaning away trying to catch it. I mean, I'm like backpedaling a little bit, but it's going to go over my head and I'm like, sun's in my, I don't know what to do with the sun. And, and of course, I'm going to miss, I'm going to drop this ball or I'm not even going to get to it. And it goes behind me and I heard it. The ball lands in somebody's glove. And it's because the shortstop knew what was happening, immediately took off, ran behind me, and fielded the ball in the place that I was supposed to be responsible for. Now, that was great. It was also very embarrassing. And you know why? Because everybody was laughing at me. Like, everybody knew what happened. Everybody knew how weak I was as a player. I knew the other team was laughing at me, shaking their heads. You know, they thought they had it. It was totally embarrassing, but I deserved it. They didn't kick me off the team, but I wondered if I should keep coming back, you know, that feeling. But that guy was doing my job for me because I couldn't do it. 
And it was embarrassing. And you know what's interesting to me? Is I don't get a whiff of David trying to embarrass Saul in this passage. Like, in fact, several times he calls himself Saul's servant. In fact, what he actually does is he suffers indignity that was supposed to be aimed at Saul. When he goes to face off with Goliath, verse 42 says that Goliath disdained him. And what did he say? He said, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Undoubtedly talking about the staff that David was carrying. And he cursed David by his gods. David intercedes and suffers the indignity that Saul deserves. So what do we have here in this passage? We have a boy facing off with a man. And one boy who's clothed in shepherd's gear, facing off against a giant, trained and equipped for this moment. And I just wonder what he must have been thinking when he sees David charging at him. What would everybody watching this be thinking as they watch David not only step out of the field, but start to move toward his enemy? And, 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 and the shock that must have come over everyone there as David's stone finds its purchase in Goliath's head. And I like to imagine the ground itself shook when Goliath fell. It's an amazing story because it's an impossible victory. And what was impossible for the men of Israel, we see was possible for God. But here's the million-dollar question. What do we do with this story? Like, what do you, what are, as God said, it's, it's, it's in the canon. It's one of our favorite stories to tell our children. It's very present in children's ministry. It's enshrined in our culture. And often, like I said earlier, often this is used to talk about abilities. But if I've said it once, I'll say it a thousand times. That the story of David is always, always, always about what God is doing in the world. What his rule looks like, what his will looks like, his ways, his favor for his people. And when David's at his best, like he is in this passage, he's not always, but he is here. Then what we see is a greater David. One who will leave his father's house to join a battle and fight for his people. One who will adopt the posture of a shepherd. We read that passage earlier in the service where he calls himself the great shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. One who suffers the indignity that we are due. One who will make an exchange. Me for them. I'll fight this fight. So you never have to. And he achieves a victory for all who are, bearing, who are bearing the impossible weight of sin, and while he does not put on our man-made armor, friends, he clothes you in his robes of righteousness. I'll never get tired of seeing the ways the Bible tells us that the good news of the gospel comes to people who are terrified. And can't stop staring at the things that they're afraid of. And are worn out by it. And friends, there's a lot to be afraid of. We could go on and on. 
talking about our own landscape of fear and the decisions that we make because of it, the way we act out, out of it, I could, I, could, I, could write a, I could write novels about it. One thing I want you to see here is that this story is telling us that Jesus sees you and that his desire is for you, that he desires your honor and he desires your redemption. And so we don't lose heart because our David is here. He has come and he stepped into our landscape of fear and he fights on our behalf. And when he rose from the dead, he provided a redemptive witness of the announcement God makes to the world that death has been defeated, sin has lost its power to condemn, and your enemy has no claim on you anymore. But you know what I love the most about this story? All that is true. This story speaks to us of what Jesus did for us, prepares God's people to understand who Jesus is, but it shouts to us of his willingness. Because he is all bound up in love for his father and love for his people, love for you. Can you see that? Can you sense Jesus' willingness to take those terrible steps because he loves you and protects you? Is your heart convinced of that? Let me pray. O you who intercedes, O you who interposes his precious blood, O you who is bound by love on a mission of grace, please bless your people. Holy Spirit, please convince our hearts of the truth of these things. Protect us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.